For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I was writing this sermon, uh, which is about the love of God on Friday morning, and I was listening to the new record from one of my favorite musicians. His name is Sufjan Stevens. Some of you might have heard of Sufjan, but I doubt like 90% of you know who he is. So here we go anyway. You're going to have to indulge me. And uh, his song lead single for this new album is called, Will Anybody Ever Love Me? And uh, as I was listening to the sermon, listening to the sermon, kind of listening to the song, writing the sermon, uh, these words struck me. Here's how he starts. I want to know, will anybody ever love me for good reasons, without grievance, not for sport? Will anybody ever love me in every season, pledge allegiance to my heart, to my burning heart? Will anybody ever love me is in so many ways, the cry of all of our hearts, whether we admit it or not. All of us were made to be loved ultimately by God. Here's the hod in Jesus loves you. God loves you. Do you really believe that? Just take a moment and do a quick diagnostic. Do a quick diagnostic of your heart and of your spirit this morning. Do I really believe deep down at the core of who I am, that more than anything else, my identity and my life are defined by God's love for me. The essence of Christianity is that God loves us and that he has gone to great lengths to display that love in Jesus Christ. That's what I want us to think about this morning. That's what these verses call us to celebrate. Listen to how another writer, not Sufjan Stevens, this Christian author, David Benner, puts it in his book, Surrender to Love. He writes, the great distinctive of the love of the Christian God is that there are no strings attached to it. God simply loves humans. He created us for a love relationship with himself and nothing we can do or not do changes the love he bears us. Listen, guys, I want you to just have it clear in your heads this morning how unique that message is. It's in stark contrast, actually, to the vindictive, whimsical, threatening, sometimes capricious gods of other religions. The Eightfold Path, the Hindu Doctrine of Karma, the Muslim Code of Law, the Jewish Covenant, each of these ways, in their own distinctive ways, offers a, a, pla a path to earn God's approval, to earn God's love. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. Only Christianity 
says that God loves us because God is love. Now, of course, all of us need to hear about God's love. But this morning, there are three, maybe segments of people, three types of people that are on my heart that I would like to minister to. First, some of you, I think, I know, are experiencing personal renewal and revival in your own lives. You're wanting to go deeper in your relationship with Christ. You're feeling the freedom of repentance. These words I want to minister to you today and help you go deeper. Second, others of you are experiencing significant suffering or hurt or pain. Um, It can be about mental health. It can be about critical relationships. And then a third group is those of you who are numb at best, numb to the reality of God and to the work of the spirit around you. And at worst, maybe you're just stone cold dead to that reality. Your hearts are hard either through sin or through negligence. And so I feel like the Lord uses these verses often in my life when I'm in those places. And I'm, I've been asking that he will use those verses in your life today. This is a, in a sense, this is a charter text for our church This is probably like the sixth or seventh time I've preached on these verses at Christ Church or in some other context because we want our church more than anything else to be defined by you more and more knowing the depth of God's love. And so just a bit of setting the stage before we jump in. Paul, if you look with me in verse 14, starts with those words for this reason. He's picking back up. What he begins saying back in verse 1. If you look in verse 1, you'll see him write the same thing for this reason. But then, as we saw last week, Paul went on a detour in verses 1 through 13 of chapter 3 where he was describing his own ministry. He was describing his calling to preach the unsearchable riches of Jesus to everyone. Now, verse 14, he's getting back on track. And he prays in these verses. These verses really are a prayer for the Christians in Ephesus. And through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, they're a prayer for us today as well. And so the opening words there for this reason really take us back to chapter 2. Paul's saying, because of what God has done for us in Jesus, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. He's made us who were of what God is doing in the church, verses 11 through 22 of chapter 2. He's creating this new humanity where dividing walls of hostility are being broken down because of all of that. For this reason, he says, I want you to continue to grasp and know the goodness and the love of God. But Paul also understand understood that that's a very hard thing to do, which is why if you look at the verses, he prays again and again for us to have power, for us to have strength, for us to have the ability from God to see and know God's love. So as we look at this prayer this morning, I just want to make two observations. We can look at these verses really under two headings. First, the personal love of God in Christ. That's one. Two, the vast love of God in Christ, the personal love of God and the vast love of God. So first look with me at the personal love of God in Christ. Paul prays there in verse 16 that the Ephesians be granted strength from the Holy Spirit. He says that he may grant you to be strengthened. Notice all these strength words with power through his spirit in your 
inner self, in your inner being. And then he says that strength is for a purpose, which we see there in verse 17. The purpose of Paul's prayer for the Holy Spirit to give us a spiritual strength is so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. In other words, Paul is asking that God would give to Christians the power to understand the personal love of God in Jesus Christ. Now, these are just profound words. Let me try to help us see that. What Paul's saying here is, we hear it so often that it sounds ordinary to us. So let me just try to hear it for the first time. The man, Jesus Christ, personally indwells our hearts if we trust him. The man, Jesus Christ, who is the eternal son of God, who entered into Mary's virgin womb, who was born into this world. The man, Jesus Christ, who had friends and family, who was a five-year-old and a 12-year-old and a 22-year-old and a 32-year-old when he died. The man, Jesus, fully human, who made these radically exclusive claims about his own godness and who was murdered on a Roman cross to atone for Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. The man Jesus, who at this very moment is in heaven with God the Father in his resurrection body, that Jesus, the personal human Jesus, dwells in you, in your heart by faith. How does that work? How can Jesus be in heaven and dwell in all of our hearts? Paul tells us he dwells in our hearts through the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. The work of Christ and the work of the Spirit, they're closely intertwined. They're, in fact, so closely connected that in other places of Paul's letters, he can say things like what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. He can say that the second Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The work of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit are so closely wrapped together that when the Spirit enters into your heart, Jesus himself, the personal human being, Jesus, enters into your hearts through the ministry of his Spirit. And so listen, the love of God is demonstrated not just that, in we, that we receive good things that Jesus did for us. It's not just demonstrated the love of God in receiving incredible blessings, which are incredible. Things like the forgiveness of sins, things like adoption, things like we've seen in Ephesians 1, things like a new identity as his beloved son or daughter. Those are amazing truths, but the love of God goes further. It tells us that we receive Jesus himself. Jesus, the person of Jesus, is ours. And we are his. God's love is most evident in that he gives us himself. Everything else is just icing. Why belabor this point? Why belabor this point? Uh, Because 
we so often in our lives fail to grasp the personal nature of God's love for us because we've not had direct personal experience of God in Jesus. And there's no substitute for that, you see. There's no substitute for a genuine encounter with Jesus. Our men's book study this week was reading chapter 2 of Herman Bobbink's The Wonderful Works of God. And in that chapter, he talks about the knowledge of God. And the main point he makes is that intellectual knowledge of God is not real knowledge, if that's all it is. Knowledge of God is, by definition, experiential Another theologian distinguishes between what he calls knowledge by acquaintance and knowledge by description. He says knowledge by acquaintance is always better than knowledge by description. Think about it this way. How many of you have ever had an experience that made you laugh really, really hard? Maybe you're with a group of people and something hilarious happens and all of you just crack up laughing. And then a couple of days later... You tell the story to someone else who wasn't there. And you tell the story knowing how hilarious it was in the moment, in your experience. But when you recount the story to them, they just kind of stare at you with a blank look on their face. Does that ever That happens to me every week, by the way. And I'm preaching to y'all and you don't laugh or you don't respond in any way to what I'm saying. That happens all the time to me. And you just, knowledge by experience is different than knowledge by description. Knowing God... And God's love is not simply a matter of knowledge by description. It's not simply a matter of believing things about God. It's a matter of experiencing God personally through Jesus Christ who dwells in your hearts. There's this old, um, great old interview um, of Bono, the lead singer of U2. You should know Bono, by the way. Bono, the rock star and Christian. He's being interviewed by this guy named Gabriel Byrne, who was a, he was an Irishman who had this kind of Larry King-like TV show for years in the 80s and 90s in the UK. And he's interviewing Bono, and, and Byrne begins to ask Bono about what he thinks of Jesus, because Bono is kind of this notorious public Christian figure. And Bono claims that he believes in Jesus, And Gabriel Byrne, kind of classic, modern, post-Christian, secular guy, um, interrupts Bono and asks him, do you pray? You know, sort of this kind of arrogant, incredulous tone in his voice. And then he says, who do you pray to? And Bono says, I pray to Jesus. I'm not going to try and do his accent, you know, but you can get it. Bono says, I pray to Jesus. And, And Byrne says, who or what was Jesus, you know, really kind of slimy, arrogant, smarmy, liberal type language. And Bono explains who Jesus was. And then Byrne asks, therefore, it follows that you believe he was divine and that he rose physically from the dead. And Bono says, I do. And Byrne says, and you believe he made promises, which I know Jesus. He knows the person, the man, Jesus. He had knowledge by experience. Have you had that? Have you ever experienced God's love or have you only heard it described? Have you ever known the person Jesus? Or can you just tell us things about him? The love of God for you is not a collection of ideas. And it is not a collection of propositional truths that you adhere to or that you reject. Or... For you, perhaps the love of God has only been knowing that he does good things for you. 
He takes care of you. He forgives you. He answers you. Yes, he does that. But that, if that's all it is, is knowledge by description. All of those things are true. But those things come from Jesus himself. Do you see that? Believing that he indwells your heart and you experience his personal love is the essence of Christianity. And it's what Paul's praying for here. The great Puritan, Thomas Goodwin, he put it this way. Not only does God bless with all other good things, but above all by communicating himself and his own blessedness. Does Jesus indwell your heart by faith? Do you know Jesus? That is Christianity. And that's the only way to experience and not just acknowledge God's love. Paul wants us to have the strength to comprehend the personal love of God in Christ. Second, the vast love of God. Paul goes on to write that if by faith Christ dwells, verse 17, we're, we're rooted and grounded in love. And then he prays again that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints more and more and more of God's love. What is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know this love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God's love. It's like if you're a Christian, you, you fall into a never-ending cycle of divine love when you come to know Jesus. Jesus roots and grounds us in his love, and the goal of that rooting is to more and more know and enjoy his love. So God and his love is, is all in all. Paul, in fact, uses a, an oxymoronic statement here, doesn't he? He says he's asking us to, to know something that surpasses knowledge. Verse 19. Knowing something that can never be fully known is what Paul's praying for. To constantly and ever be filled with more of the inexhaustible fullness of God. That's the Christian experience. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's what it means to know God's love. And, and in attempting to communicate the reality of the love of God for us in Christ. Did you see it? Paul uses those four directional words or those four words that are attempting to measure something to describe its vastness. He says the love of God in Christ is broad, it's long, it's high, and it's deep. Do, do any of you believe that that's true today, I wonder? Let's think about it a little bit longer. The breadth of God's love is what Paul wants us to more and more know. The idea of God's broad love means that his love extends to anyone and everyone. His love extends to anyone and everyone. God doesn't have a type. <laughs> the very end of the Bible proves that this is true of his love. We read at the very end of the Bible in Revelation a vision that John has of the angels in heaven worshiping and praising Jesus. And they're praising Jesus for what he's done. And they say this, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God. Now listen, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. The beauty of the breadth of God's love is that no type of person is too far gone to receive it. 
No type of person is too far gone to receive it. Listen, whatever you have done, wherever you've been, your story, you are not outside the broad love of Jesus. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is in Luke chapter 7. When Jesus, he's at this dinner party with a bunch of really irritating religious people, Pharisees. And uh, there's this woman sort of in the background who's a well-known woman of the street, a prostitute. And at one point in the middle of the dinner, this woman is just overwhelmed by the presence of Jesus. And she approaches him and begins washing his feet with her hair in what can only be described as, as a pretty sensual, sexual way of showing love. It's the only language that she knew how to use. And, and of course, all of the other people are scandalized and defended. But the woman knows just who she is. And she knows just what she has done. And more than anyone else in the room that night, she understood the broad love of Jesus. He receives sinners who know they're sinners. That's how powerful the blood of Jesus in his death is. As one of the hymns puts it, his blood makes the foulest clean. His blood can atone for me. You can't possibly be outside the scope of his forgiving grace. His love is that broad. Secondly, the length. Look at what he says. God's love is also long. What does that mean? There's a lot we could say here, right? One idea of the length of God's love is that it's fixed and unchanging in its character and intent. The love of God is a direct, unbroken line from eternity past to eternity future. It is endless. Paul's already taught us this in this letter. Before any of us were ever even born, before the universe existed, God set his affection on us in his electing decree. And he chose us from before the foundation of the world to be his children. And that love continues throughout every single day of our lives, whether we feel it or not. And it will continue on into the new world God will one day bring. The love of God is a constant, not a variable. And because it is constant, we can't get away from it or escape it. I think particularly of those of you who are numb and hard to the love of God today. I think of those of you who are wandering or straying or running as far as you can, like Jonah, in the opposite direction that God calls you to go in. God's love in Jesus is so long that it's out of your reach or that you're out of his. I always think here about another story from the Gospel of Luke. When Jesus tells the story of the two sons, the older brother stays home and thinks that he's going to receive love from his father because he's been good. But the younger brother runs as far away as he can get, wishing his father were dead and just getting the inheritance for crying out loud. He wastes away his dad's inheritance in the far country and wakes up one morning hungover, filled with self-loathing, looking at the pig slop longingly and finally decides to go home. And the line of Jesus' love extends to him. That's what Paul's saying, especially to him. The father comes running for him and embraces him and throws a party for him. 
Those of you here who are looking for love in all the wrong places, who are eager for joy and satisfaction and a full life, who are findings even though it promises to. Those of you who are finding out that Augustine's words are true, our hearts are restless until they rest in you, God. The long love of Jesus will draw you back home. Will you come? His love is long. It's broad. It's long. It's high. This is how Paul expresses God's final and ultimate purposes for us. It's the height to which God proposes to raise us. Again, salvation is not just forgiveness. The height of the love of Christ is that Jesus died not only to forgive us, but he was raised to make us like him. He died not just that we might no longer be punished, but he was raised that we might become his children. And he's prepared a place for his children. You have been raised with Christ. Alan just prayed that. We've been seated with him in the heavenlies. And he will take us home one day with new bodies according to the mighty working of his power. Jesus isn't going to be satisfied until he gets you as high as he presently is in heaven. Until your body is perfected and your soul is without sin. That's what he prays for. When he prays for us in John 17, he prays that they may be with him where he is. That's what he talks about. John, when he says we will see him and we will be like him. Isn't that how we all experience um, loving and longing? When you really love someone, think about this. When you really love someone and you have an experience that they're not there with you for, the experience itself is lessened because the person you love isn't with you. And so love inherently wants to include others in your enjoyment, in your blessedness, and in your privilege. That's Christ's love. He wants us to be a church that's glorious without spot or wrinkle. He wants us to be holy and pure. That's his ambition for the church. His love goes that high. Uh, In the final book of the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis, um, in The Last Battle, writes about really kind of the new creation New Narnia comes in, and Aslan, the lion, the Christ figure, is giving the children a tour of the new Narnia. And he continues to show them one wonder after another. And I bet some of you know the phrase that he says again and again and again. Does anybody know it? Further up and further in. Further up and further in. Further up and further in. That's how high the love of Jesus is. He wants us more and more and more to dive into it. If you're wanting renewal and revival in your life, just think of what awaits us. Think of how high the love of Christ will take us. Meditate and contemplate on that aspect of who Jesus is. Last thing, his love is deep. Jesus' love is so deep that he's always there with you when you're in the depths The depths, that's a phrase used all over the Bible, especially the Psalms, to refer to the hurt and despair that we often experience in life, to refer to loss, to refer sometimes even to death. For example, Psalm 130 tells us, out of the depths, I cry to you. Psalm 69, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into the depths. And the flood sweeps over me. The love of Jesus goes with us into the depths. We know that 
because Jesus himself did not hold on to what was rightfully his, but descended into the depths, even death, to rescue us out of our sin and bondage, to rescue us out of the depths of our own death. The love of God in Christ goes so deep that it is unconquerable, unchangeable, and unassailable. Listen to this quote from Madeline Laingle. She writes, quote, I will have nothing to do with a God who cares only occasionally. I need a God who is with us always, everywhere, in the deepest depths as well as the highest heights. It is when things go wrong, when good things do not happen, when our prayers seem to have been lost, that God is most present. We do not need the sheltering wings when things go smoothly. We are closest to God in the darkness, stumbling along blindly. So for those of you here who are in the depths, for whom things are not going smoothly, for whom it seems God is ignoring your prayers, this promise is for you. What will help you? How will you climb out? You can't climb out, but Jesus is with you in the depths. Jesus' love will take you out. You can't ever be too deep into misery or grief or pain or sin that God can't reach you in Jesus. The thing we want most for you is to have more and more strength, more and more power to believe, to know that God really does love you that much. It's so full that you'll never experience it fully. It's so mysterious that you'll never know it entirely, but it is broad, long, high, and deep. May we believe it in the name of the Father, Son, Spirit. Let's pray.